God, we are thirsty and hungry for your word today. God, we can't wait to hear from you. God, we need your help today as we study your word. God, would you give us eyes to see? Give us hearts to receive? God, would you open our ears to hear from you today? So please help us, God. We need you in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to meet Jerry this morning. Jerry is someone that you probably know. Jerry grew up and was born into a Christian family. Both of his parents and his siblings are passionate followers of Jesus. Jerry grew up in the church. He was at the church whenever the doors uh, were open. In fact, thanks to the influence of Jerry's parents, he made a profession of faith in Christ at the age of 13 and was soon baptized after that. Jerry was discipled and mentored by his youth pastor all the way through uh, high school. And Jerry's faith appeared to be genuine and vibrant. He oftentimes would pray and read the Bible, and he was growing in his understanding of God. But following his high school graduation, Jerry went off to college and developed a new group of friends. Now, these friends were not Christians, and in fact, they were actually hostile to uh, Christianity as a whole. And they would oftentimes throw out questions to Jerry that absolutely shook the foundation of his faith. Jerry stopped going to church. He stopped reading the Bible and praying. And now Jerry is 35 years old, doubts the existence of God. He's already twice divorced. He's an alcoholic and painfully bitter and difficult to be around. And Jerry wants nothing to do with Christianity. Now let's say that Jerry's parents uh, run into you and start talking about Jerry and kind of tells you all about Jerry's life and where he's been spiritually. Let's say that Jerry's parents ask you the question, do you believe that Jerry is going to heaven? I wonder what you would say to that question. So we all know different Jerry's in our lives. Maybe some of us are here today and Jerry's story resonates with maybe even your story today. And I hope the way that you would respond to Jerry's parents is that you would maybe walk through some of the things that we've learned throughout this study in 1 John. I hope you would point out maybe some of the proofs and signposts that we've looked at that qualify a person to be a true follower of Jesus. Well, there's one more signpost. We're gonna get back to Jerry towards the end of our time, but there's one more signpost that I wanna share with us this morning that I think would really help us engage with Jerry's parents and even Jerry personally. Here's the last signpost I wanna point out for us in our study that overcoming the world by persevering until the end proves that you are born of God. That as John finishes his letter here, he's kind of a typical preacher where you kind of get towards the end and you're just kind of throwing everything in there and maybe doing a little bit of review at the end. But that's exactly what John will do. In the first couple of verses in chapter five, he reintroduces some themes that we've already looked at throughout the first four chapters. But then he gets at this idea of overcoming the world, which I'll kind of unpack as persevering until the end, that is an important aspect of the doctrine of assurance. See, as John finishes and closes out his letter, he does so by what I'll call giving us a chain of assurance, that John will show us these interlocking links, that when you put them together and see how they're all connected, you really see the doctrine of assurance. 
And so I wanna walk through these four links of the doctrine of assurance in this passage. So four links in the chain of assurance. Here's number one for us. Number one is belief in the correct Jesus. Belief in the correct Jesus. As John closes his letters, he wants us to know exactly how it is that we can have eternal life and be born of God. Remember, he wants us to have confidence that you can be truly saved, that you really do have eternal life. And so he brings us back to the very foundation of Christianity, which is having a belief in Jesus. Now, verse one of chapter five states this first link very clearly. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, this sounds so obvious. You have to wonder why he includes this in his last chapter. We have to remember that part of the purpose of John writing this letter was he's trying to expose and rebuke some of the opponents that were in this church trying to lead the Christians astray. These opponents were called Gnostics. They believed in in Gnosticism, which had a, a different view of Jesus that is contrary to the New Testament. So as John is closing out his letter, he's trying to prop up the correct view of Jesus, thus providing a rebuke to the Gnostics. And we drop down to uh, verses six through 10, you see John really going at them. And these verses are definitely tricky to interpret. If you felt a little lost as I was reading them, um, you're not alone. John says in verse six that Jesus came by water and blood, not just by water. Uh, John uses this metaphor of water and blood to kind of describe who Jesus actually is. Now, I believe that the water here refers to Jesus's baptism and the blood refers to the death of Christ. John is claiming that Jesus Christ was truly baptized and truly did die. Again, the reason why he's emphasizing these two uh, important events is because he's rebuking the Gnostics and their incorrect view of Christ. See, the Gnostics were okay and even affirmed the baptism of Jesus. They were okay with the water part. Because for a Gnostic, they believe that at the baptism of Jesus, that's when Jesus became God. That's when the heavenly Christ came from heaven and descended upon the physical earthly Christ, and that's when things really began for the divinity of Jesus. But they were not okay with the crucifixion of Christ. They did not believe that Jesus really died. So they believed that right before the cross, the spirit of Christ withdrew himself from the earthly body of Jesus, and so the person that actually died was just the the physical or earthly Jesus, not Jesus, the son of God. And so that's why we've seen all throughout this letter just numerous accounts of John emphasizing the cross of Jesus, that John has emphasized the, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, the fact that Jesus died in our place. See, John is wanting us to know that that Jesus was not just a good moral teacher. He wasn't just an example to follow, but Jesus was our sacrifice who went to the cross for us. John has emphasized the propitiation of Jesus and the blood of Jesus and the death of Jesus. He wants us to know that without the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, you not only have a missing link in the chain of assurance and salvation, but you, you don't even have Christianity anymore. 
See, at the heart of our faith is the fact that Jesus died in our place. Now, furthermore, in this passage, John explains these three witnesses. He talks about the spirit, the blood, and the water that all affirm and testify that Jesus was fully God and fully man. I cannot tell you how important it is to get Jesus right. Like, it is literally a matter of eternal life and eternal death. That what you think about when you think about Jesus might be the most important thing about you, and it is the first link in the chain of assurance. Secondly, the second link that John points out as he closes out this letter is he emphasizes love for God and love for other believers. Again, this is not a new idea, but this is uh, maybe a natural step in the next link of assurance. And he talks about this in the second half of verse one and verse two. John claims everyone, or he says, uh, verse, at the end of verse one, he claims everyone who loves the Father also loves anyone who has been born of the Father, referring to other Christians. We see John, again, put on the same level, love for God and love for others, that a correct belief in the right Jesus will lead you to loving God and loving others, that truly believing in Jesus won't allow you to stay neutral in your affections for both God and for the Christians around you. He even says in verse two that you know that you love others when you love God and obey his commands. Now, if you're familiar with John's writings, this is not his usual approach, that usually what John will say is those who claim to love God, that will be demonstrated in their love for others and following God's commands. But here he does the reverse. He's showing us that these two ideas, love for God and love for others, cannot exist apart from one another. They're basically uh, two sides to the same coin, that one cannot love God without loving others and obeying his commands, and one cannot love others and obey God's commands without loving God himself. This has been a reoccurring theme all throughout this letter that we have seen, that when we know God truly, that's when we can love others genuinely. And loving God most leads us to loving others best, that these two go hand in hand. Now, the third link in the chain of assurance is having a joy-filled obedience, a joy-filled obedience. Look with me at verse three. John says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, the point in verse three is that the natural outworking of our love for God is demonstrated in keeping his commands. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, that if you love me, you will keep my commands. That our obedience is the observable mark for our love for God. So John's point is that our obedience is not the root of our salvation, but it is the fruit of our salvation. The root is our faith in Jesus, but the outcome of that is our obedience to his commands. But notice here, John says that our obedience to his commands, that they're not burdensome. And so if they're not burdensome, then what are they? Well, if they're not burdensome, then they should be desirable. They should be something that fills us with joy 
Psalm 40, verse eight, the psalmist says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. Psalm 119, verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in them. That loving God means admiring and valuing and treasuring him with such authenticity that you view his will not as something that's burdensome, but as something that is a desire within the depths of your soul. Now, surely you will have seasons in which you'll view God's commands as a burden. You'll have seasons where they kind of feel like an obligation, where you're trying to exercise your will to obey them. But the normative posture in the Christian is that you're viewing God's commands as something that delights you and gives you pleasure in your heart because you're connecting with God. If you're married this morning, you know that your marriage is most healthy when you think about spending time with your spouse or serving them, not as an obligation, but as a desire. That's when you know your marriage is kind of in a good place, when you you see the trash that's overflowing and you think to yourself, man, I, I get to serve my spouse here by taking out the trash. That it's not an obligation, it's not a burden to serve them. I hope Lindsay, my wife, is listening to this when the NBA playoffs are on tonight at eight o'clock. See, if our, if our starting place with God truly is that we have been accepted in Jesus through the grace that he's given us, if that really is the foundation of our relationship with God, then we will view his commands not as obligations, but we will view them as invitations, that they are like invitations of ways of being with God, not as ways of trying to appease God. See, we've already been received by God through Jesus, and so we're viewing his commands as like markers where true joy and life are actually found. And so that leads us to delighting in these commands and following him in obedience. So that's the third link in the chain of assurance. Here's the final one, number four, Somewhat of the new theme for us is overcoming the world. This link, this idea of persevering until the end would be very helpful as you're talking to uh, Jerry's parents and you're responding to where Jerry is spiritually. In verses four and five, John says that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Verse five. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So this idea of overcoming the world or persevering until the end is really the culmination of all of the signposts and all of the proofs that we've already seen throughout this book. That the one who overcomes is the one who is in fellowship with other believers. The one who overcomes is the one who is walking in the light is the one who is, who is fighting against sin and repenting of sin. It's the one who's not loving this world, but is loving other believers. The one who's uh, overcoming the world is one who is pursuing obedience and godliness as they pursue after Jesus. And overcoming the world, it's not a, a sinless perfection, but it's a consistent direction towards the things of God. And overcoming the world has maybe more to do with how you're finishing than how you actually began the Christian life. Yesterday, I had the opportunity of going to the uh, Indy 500 
I think they're called the qualifying rounds. Is that what they're called? I, I'm, yeah, been here three years. I still don't know. But I was there yesterday and uh, wasn't my first time there. But it, it's like remarkable how loud it is there and just how fast that they're growing. It always takes me off guard. But watching that and watching them kind of race around and looking at their speeds, like I, I don't know much about racing, but I do know this, that for someone who is trying to win the race, it has less to do with maybe how you start the race and more to do with racing in such a way that you actually finish and that you finish well. I know it's somewhat of an obvious uh, observation coming from a basketball player, but I think the same is true within the Christian life, that it's less to do with how you start in the Christian life, and it has more to do with living out the Christian life in such a way that you actually finish the race. See, for these racers in the Indy 500, it would serve them uh, no good at all for them to have a fast start. In the first 50 laps, they're way out in front of people, but they're racing in such a way that leads them to crashing into the wall so they can't actually finish the race. There's 200 laps in the Indy 500. It's a long race. And the author of Hebrews also has something to say about that. Hebrews chapter 12, that we have this race that is set out before us, and he tells us to run not with speed, but he tells us to run with perseverance, that we're not in a sprint here within the Christian life. We're, we're in this marathon, and we are called to run with perseverance so that we can overcome the world. And so for the rest of our time together this morning, I just wanna maybe answer the question, how? How does that happen? How can we uh, overcome the world and persevere until the end? So let me just unpack this with three aspects of what it means to overcome the world. I'll use some of the verses here in our passage, and I'll also use some verses outside of 1 John. Okay, three aspects to overcoming the world to keep in mind. Number one, keep in mind that faith guards us, that faith guards us. Verse four, John tells us that the victory that has overcome the world is our faith that it is our faith or our believing that is the immediate evidence of God's begetting or God's making us his children. That faith is the means by which we persevere, but it's not because we are so powerful. It's not because we are holding on to Jesus so tightly by our faith, but we persevere because of the object of our faith and the power that he is unleashing in holding on to us. I love how Peter puts this in 1 Peter uh, chapter one, verse three. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Look, Peter tells us some unbelievable realities that are true for followers of Jesus. He says that you have been born again. He says that you have a living hope, that you have this unbelievable inheritance that is yours as being kept in heaven, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. But then he says in verse five, that it is God's power through faith that is guarding us. See, it is our faith 
that allows us to be attached to the object of our faith, which is Jesus, who unleashes his power in the life of a believer, thus causing us to sustain until the very end. So we cannot underestimate the role of faith in our ongoing sanctification. I know we talk a lot about faith in our justification, that moment when we come to faith in Jesus and we're saved, but we're also called to keep believing and keep trusting in the one who has the victory. See, faith is receiving Jesus for all that he is to us because our eyes have been opened. It's seeing his beauty, it's seeing his worth, it's seeing all of his truth. And that allows us to withstand the temptations of this world. This is why faith allows us to conquer the world. It's because it is faith that opens up our eyes to seeing that Jesus is better. That's really what faith is all about. It's whatever's being compared to Jesus and coming to the conclusion that Jesus is more satisfying, that Jesus is better than all of the other things that the world has to offer us. And so faith is what allows us to keep moving on because it severs the roots of those cravings for the world. So overcoming the world means that the desires of the flesh and the desires of this world, the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions has no hold on us anymore. They don't rule us anymore. They have no power over us because it is God's infinite power that protects us for salvation by sustaining our faith in Jesus. Look, it's God's power that nourishes your faith. It's God's power that strengthens your faith, that sustains your faith, that builds up your faith, and in so doing, he secures you against the only thing that could destroy you, which is unbelief. Look, the war for perseverance is decided in the battle for belief. There is nothing that, that causes more havoc in our relationship with God than unbelief. Now, when you start to doubt the promises of God, you doubt his goodness and his faithfulness and his trustworthiness, that is when we start to fall away from the faith and we cease to overcome the world. And so look, reminding ourselves of the beauty and the power of the object of our faith is what guards us from unbelief. God, I wanna ask you this morning, are you winning the battle of belief in your heart? When those temptations come storming in your life, when fear knocks at the door, when the doubts start to surround you, are you winning the battle there to choose to believe in what God has to say is true? Are you winning the battle to believe that God is for you and not against you? Do you remember what Jesus told Peter the night where, where Peter denied Jesus three times? Jesus said this to Peter, said, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you that he, that he may sift you like wheat. But then Jesus says this, he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that that's in the Bible. I am so glad that Jesus had to pray for Peter for his faith not to fail. Like this is part of Jesus' role in the life of a believer, that he continually lives to intercede for us. 
See, Jesus did not say that I have prayed for you and I will be like a shield protecting you against the enemy. No, he says, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. See, it is our faith that is the means by which God's power is unleashed in our life, causing us to be sustained until the very end. And so it's a good reminder to know that our faith guards us in faithfulness. Number two, the second aspect of overcoming the world is that the Holy Spirit seals us. The Holy Spirit seals us. John says in verse five, in kind of a question form here, he says that the one who overcomes the world is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, how is it possible to believe in Jesus? How do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, it's through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, who gives us the gift of faith to see the beauty of Jesus, thus causing us to believe but it's also the ministry of the Holy Spirit who seals us until the final day. Ephesians chapter one, verses 13 and 14, Paul says this about the Holy Spirit. He says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Look, this is some rich, rich truth here that can help us persevere until the end. He says two things about the work of the Holy Spirit. Number one, notice that the Holy Spirit is what seals us. This term, seal, refers to a stamped impression in wax pointing to ownership and protection. In Paul's day, this word was used to authenticate as something being genuine and real. Like this is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer, that the Spirit is himself the seal that marks us as God's very own. And yet not only that, but the second thing that Paul points out about the Holy Spirit is that he is a guarantee of our future inheritance or some translations have that the Holy Spirit is kind of like a down payment. So this means that the Holy Spirit not only confirms our future inheritance, but God has graciously provided a small foretaste of our future inheritance that's ours in heaven through the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Look, the reason, the reason why this is important is because you will go through times in this life in which God seems distant and which God seems uninvolved in your life. Guarantee it. You will go through struggles with doubt, with anxiety, with fear. Like there will be times in your life in which sin has caused you to think that you are beyond the reach of forgiveness. And I just wanna remind you this morning that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your faith upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he guarantees to keep you until the very end and has proved that to be true through the gift of the Holy Spirit. That it's the Holy Spirit that seals your heart and cries loudly and definitively that you belong to God. Look, follower of Jesus, you have a decision to make every single day to either believe in the truth that you have the Holy Spirit who is confirming your salvation, or you can believe the lies of the enemy. You can believe that accuser who wants to remind you of your past, 
who wants to point out all of your sin and all of your struggles and all of your doubts. You have a decision to make. Are you gonna believe the accuser or are you going to believe the Holy Spirit who is a seal in your heart, who is causing you to cry out, Abba, Father, thus proving that you are a child of God? Like you gotta win that battle. You gotta win that battle of leaning into the Holy Spirit and not leaning into the lies of the enemy. Look, Paul is telling us that God has given us the Holy Spirit for a reason. This is kind of like an appetizer. This is a foretaste of what's coming, of what will be yours if you press on, if you hold strong to the confession of your faith and press into the power and the presence of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit not only seals us, but lastly here, the third thing, maybe the most important is this promise that Jesus will sustain us, that Jesus will sustain us. Love this promise in 1 Corinthians chapter one. Paul says that even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end? Who will sustain you to the end? Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Look, we find this rich promise that God will sustain us until the end. And look, this changes everything for us. This changes how we live out the Christian life. Look, to go back to the Indy 500 illustration, it's like if you were racing and somehow they guarantee that you are going to cross the finish line and that you are going to win the race, that's going to change the way that you drive. Like it means that no matter what happens in that race, no matter how many people pass you, no matter how many flat tires you get, no matter how many times you, you run out of gas, there is a guarantee that you will cross the finish line and that you will be victorious. Look, how much more for us in the Christian life that we have this guarantee that God will allow us to cross the finish line and you can take that to the bank. Like this is a promise from God himself. He personally is committed to doing whatever it takes to enabling you to be faithful until the end. That God will exert sufficient influence on our hearts in order for our faith never to die. Look, God doesn't merely just call us to obedience. He doesn't just point us in the right direction, but God promises to give us everything we need, all power, every incentive, every spiritual resolve that's necessary in order for us to be faithful until the end. Like he promises this. Look, nothing can thwart his plan or his purpose or his promise for those who are in Christ Jesus that there is no weapon formed against you that will stand, that that which God began in your life, he will see it until completion. God, I don't know about you, but that greatly encourages my heart. Like this reality that God promises to sustain us until the end, like that brings me a reassurance and a confidence in how I live out the Christian life. No matter what trial I face, no matter how much temptation is in my life, no matter how many times I wake up in the morning and I cry out to the Lord, God, make this true in my heart. 
I don't wanna just read this for head knowledge, but let this penetrate the deepest parts of my being. Like I know God's gonna sustain me to the end and he's gonna use anything necessary to get me across that finish line. He promises to do it. Because I close this morning, I wanna kinda get back to Jerry and Jerry's parents. And throughout this sermon series, I've been talking and really preparing these sermons as if there are four categories of people each and every week, that one category is the person who is fully assured that they're saved, that you're here today and your faith is in Jesus and every signpost, you're like, yeah, I can see fruit in my life of that being true. And praise the Lord for that. But the second category of people is the, the doubting believer, where you would say to yourself, yeah, I'm a believer, but I, I really struggle. I go through doubts and I go through different times of, of struggle. And then there are these other two categories. The third one of being someone who knows that they're not a Christian, who doesn't care about the things of God. And then the fourth category is the falsely assured Christian. This is the person that I've been praying most for throughout this sermon series, the person who thought that they were a follower of Jesus because they prayed some prayer, but there's no evidence, there's no fruits. They don't see the the evidence of what 1 John has been talking about throughout this sermon series. And if you're here today, that, and that's you, and Jerry's story resonates with you, look, I just wanna call you this morning to faith in Jesus and to remind you that it's not too late, that it's not too late for today to be the day of your salvation. Because look, this is how I would respond to Jerry's parents. I would say, look, I don't know if Jerry's faith is genuine. There's, there's no evidence of it being real of it being authentic, only God knows the heart, but this is what I know to be true. That if Jerry continues in unrepentance, if Jerry continues in having a hard-hearted unbelief, if he does not demonstrate a life of perseverance, then he is showing evidence of not truly knowing Jesus to begin with. But I would remind them kindly of Matthew chapter seven, verse 20, where Jesus says that you will know them by their fruits. And then I would beg them with all that I have to continue praying for Jerry, to call Jerry to repentance and faith in Jesus, to remind them that he's got another day left for today to surrender his life to him and to take advantage of the promise in 1 John that if he confesses his sin, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive him of his sins and all of his unrighteousness. Look, if you're here today and God is stirring in your heart, maybe he's been stirring throughout this sermon series, you're sensing that God is maybe opening your eyes to seeing the beauty of Jesus for the first time, can I encourage you to make today the day of your salvation, to not leave this room without crying out to the Lord in faith, asking him to forgive you of your sins because he's paid it all on the cross. Like I would love to talk to you more if, if you want a conversation. We've got a Next Steps team outside this room that would love to talk to you about how to become a Christian today. But don't leave this place without making that decision. Like I wanna close this morning by maybe talking to the doubting believer. Maybe you're here and you've gone through the sermon series and you've gone through different struggles Maybe you find yourself just continually struggling with sin, that you are more and more aware of the sin in your life. Maybe you're continually repenting and fighting. You're continually recalling the promises of God. 
you're continually being made aware of areas in your life that you need to spiritually grow in. You're continually being aware of the people that you need to love better. Look, I wanna encourage you today that if your faith is in Jesus, you're not a defective Christian, you're just a normal Christian. Because that describes you today, like that is the normative Christian life where you are waging war against sin every day. That you are in this ongoing fight of repenting of sin and growing in godliness. That it's normal to go to bed spiritually tired because you've been fighting against sin and claiming the promises of God. I wanna encourage you to keep going. Keep fighting because you have the almighty God who promises to strengthen you until the very end. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the power of your word. God, thank you for these rich promises. God, that we can rely completely and wholly upon you. God, we thank you that our sanctification and our perseverance is not only up to us, but that you are infusing your power through the Holy Spirit to seal us until the day of Christ. God, would you remind us that you have the victory that Jesus has overcome the world and by our faith we attach ourselves to him. God, allow that to change the way that we run this race, that you have the victory and you guarantee us a crossing that finish line. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.